0: You're listening to a recent sermon from A Covenant Church Worship Experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. Everyone has a worldview, a framework through which they interpret reality and answers to life's ultimate questions. Many people, however, are unaware of the view they embrace. This message is from part two of our series, The Wild, where we are learning how to live with a biblically-based worldview. And now, here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport.
1: So all this week in my spare time, uh, I've, been, uh, I've, been, I've been helping my wife put in a garden, right? How many of you have, have a garden, whether it's a small garden, whether it's a large garden, whether you have a field? Anybody? Yeah, some of us? Okay. And so we found out very quickly that our garden was going to have to have added protection, right? Um, and I found this out because my wife and I, we were hanging out on our front porch the other night. We put our children to bed and, and just enjoying some time to ourselves. And we saw a rabbit. And this rabbit ran out into our, into our lane. Um, and then we saw another rabbit. My wife was like, oh, look, rabbits, look how cute, you know? And I was like, yeah, they make me hungry, you know? And she's like, everything makes you hungry. I was like, I, I know. And then we saw a third rabbit. <clears throat> then we saw a fourth rabbit. Then we saw a fifth rabbit, five rabbits. And my wife was like, this is a problem. And I was like, why? There's an abundance of food. And she said, no, it's a problem because they're gonna eat everything in my garden. I was like, yeah, that's a problem. Like you can, you can attack certain things in my home, but don't mess with like a man's food, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So layoff. So um, I really wasn't sure what to do, so I got on Pinterest, right? You get on Pinterest, and you're like, rabbit ideas and fencing ideas. And... But the best idea came from my neighbor. Now, i got to tell you how this neighbor rolled up. This neighbor rolled up not, not in a car, not in a golf cart, not on a bike or a motorcycle. Um, my neighbor, who is a genuine farmer, rolled up in a, like a 1945 tractor. But it's not just like you can roll up on something. It speaks to you. But how you roll up. In what you roll up in speaks more about who you are. And so he, he pulled up and he was literally on the road with a tractor mount mowing my yard and he said, Hey there, you new? And I said, Yeah, I'm, I'm new. He's like, I thought so. He said, You need any help with anything? And I said, Actually, I'm, I'm building a garden and I've got, a, you got rabbits. So he said. I, said, I do. I've got rabbits. Yeah, you need to dig a fence. I said, dig a fence. Yeah, you need to dig 12 inches down, eight inches out, two feet up, and you won't have a problem. I said, thank you very much. And, and I watched him as he drove past me in his tractor. Um, and, and like I, I mentioned, it wasn't just how he rolled up, it was what he rolled up in, which was a pair of overalls shirtless. <laughs> and, and I promise, I'm not allowed to lie from, from like up here. Like, it's just, you immediately die as a pastor if you lie in front of your church. It's just a, a deal you have with God. And uh, he, he didn't have a shirt underneath. And I, I kid you not, one of the buckles was behind his back, and the other the flap was down, giving just an extended view to his body. Anyway, and so I went into my wife, and I said, Hey, honey, guess what? I figured out. She said, What? I said, I've been thinking. She said, About what? I said, About our garden, about your garden, and about how I can protect your garden. She said, Well, what'd you find out? I said, I didn't find anything on Pinterest, but I had an idea. <laughs> She said, what's that? I said, we need to dig a fence. She goes, that's a great idea. I said, yeah. I'm thinking, though, that we should dig it down and then dig it out, and then they can't even burrow underneath. That's a great idea, right? She gave me a hug and a kiss, and I felt really good. Never told her otherwise. Anyway. So all this week, that's what I've been doing. I've been, it, it took me a week um, to, to dig this trench around my wife's garden and then to... Um, You know, bury the posts and then to tack on the the chicken wire fence and cut it to size and to bury it and fill it back up with dirt and lay it out. So that's what I've been doing. Well, cut to this morning. I got up about 5.30 in the morning downstairs, just kind of praying over the day and and just just reviewing everything that's going on. And and I walk out to the window and it's now at six o'clock and I see two rabbits, large rabbits, like meaty, large rabbits. And they are, I kid you not, running around the garden. They're just not inside, they're outside. And they're like checking, like all these, they're like the raptors from Jurassic Park. They're like, they never hit the same spot twice. They just go and then they like realize that's not a good place. And then they check out another spot. We can't get in there. And that's what they're doing. And so after I had watched them go around the entire fence, I sat, I sat there for 15 minutes. I I kid you not. I ran out there with my arms like raised up in the air. I was like, yes. I felt victorious. I felt awesome. And so on my way to church this morning, I texted my wife and I said, hey, great news. I saw two rabbits out there and the rabbit fence held up and I wrote VICTORY in all caps. Then I wrote a bunch of little rabbit emojis with like then flex arms everywhere. And she texts me back and she's like, isn't that what the fence was supposed to do? And that was it. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand, right? I was excited about. It. I was running around in my yard this morning. Anyway, in, in our own lives, um, just, just like with that fence, like fences are built to keep things out, right? And so in our own lives, we, we build fences, don't we? Like emotional fences, maybe, maybe physical fences, but there are fences in our lives, things that we do, even as church uh, members, as, 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 as pastors, as, as Christ followers, we put up, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, fences to keep certain people out of our lives and keep certain people into our lives. And this this can get us into trouble. In fact, um, if you were to go against the grain and try to take down somebody's personal fence, have you ever done that before? You can get in a world of hurt. In fact, in the book of Luke chapter four, we read about a time when Jesus actually invaded people's personal space and talked about removing these fences this is his first sermon that he gave. The first one recorded when he first began his message or his, his ministry. And what's interesting is this message took place, this teaching, this sermon took place in his hometown. And so he's speaking to his hometown crowd. You would think it would go well. But notice, um, after Jesus talked, and we're going to get into that in a moment, notice how people responded to when Jesus attacked these people's fences. Starting in Luke chapter 4, verse 28, Jesus gives a message, and then they responded like this. When they had heard these things, these are Jesus's friends and people he grew up with and his teachers. When they had heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath. Now notice that word, you don't use the the W word too often, like I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm perturbed, right? When you really like wanna throw down, you use the word wrath, like I am filled with wrath, right? filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Basically, Jesus just disappeared. What was it that made these people so angry? I remember the first time that I preached, I was 16 years old. I had the opportunity to preach in my home church. On a Sunday evening, I was so nervous. I talked about image, and there was a very popular slogan at the time from Sprite, image is everything, and I talked about that. And, but I don't remember anybody wanting to kill me after I preached. Like, it wasn't that bad. I'm not saying it was awesome, but it wasn't that bad. In fact, I remember my family taking me out for ice cream. I, I rather enjoyed it and patting me on the back and saying, you did a great job. And this is exciting. But the first time Jesus gave a sermon to his hometown, they wanted to kill him. What was the scandalous message that Jesus brought? What was it that made people want to kill him? And Jesus taught from the story that we find ourselves in today, found in the life of Elijah. I wanna invite you to open to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. We're gonna start there. And this is where Jesus taught from. This is the sermon. This is the teaching that almost got Jesus killed or his family and friends would have killed him. This is that teaching. Um, If you could open up there, we're going to put it up on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, you can open it up in your app. Um, Unless you're driving and listening to this, then just listen and don't do that. (laughs) 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to pick up in verse, let's pick up in verse 7. We know Elijah had had picked a fight with Ahab and, and the nation there. And he had said, it's not gonna rain for a while. So God has sent Elijah out to the middle of nowhere. He's being fed by ravens. Uh, and then he's drinking from this brook, but there's no rain. And so starting in verse seven, we read this. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, being Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, say Zarephath. Zarephath. Which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die." This sounds like a very optimistic woman. <laughs> Leave me alone, man. I don't have anything. I got a little oil. I got a little flour. I'm getting some sticks. We're gonna go in, eat our last meal, and die. Then Elijah said to her, "'Do not fear. Go and do as you have said.'" <laughs> I love this. "'But first make me a little cake.'" That's what it says. "'First make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son.'" For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Let's keep going. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? She's blaming Elijah for her son's death. You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid, on his, laid him on his own bed. Notice this interaction between Elijah, this man of God, this prophet, and the Lord. Elijah cried to the Lord, Lord, God, have you brought calamity upon, even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, "O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother and Elijah said, see, your son lives. A woman said to Elijah, notice the words, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. In other words, she became a follower of the one true God that day. Now, let's put this into context. Elijah living out in the middle of nowhere, the brook dries up, the birds stop bringing food. God says to Elijah, I want you to go to this place and you're going to be in the Valley of Sidon. Now, if you're an Elijah, this would have struck you as odd because Sidon is where Jezebel is from. Remember Jezebel? Jezebel is married to the evil King Ahab. She's evil. She brought in the popular gods Asherah and the Baals, right? And so this is, this is like dangerous territory. Keep in mind, Elijah is a wanted man. Like the king is out to murder him, to kill him, and Elijah is walking through Sidon, walking through Baal's territory, walking through a very dangerous area. And God is doing something through Elijah and doing something to Elijah that's very important for us today. God is continuing to show uh, the need for Elijah to completely depend on God. Remember last week we talked about the fact that in order for God to, to mightily use a person, he must first break them so that we are completely dedicated and focused and following and dependent truly on God. And, and so God is continuing to put Elijah in places that make him weak. And he sends him to this widow. It, it, it's, it's, it's this idea that, that God is, is preparing Elijah for a battle of the worldviews. This is what everything is is going towards, as we're gonna see next week and the week after. God has been preparing Elijah for a battle of the worldviews, and he's in part reshaping Elijah's view of himself as well as God. And here's here's the point I want you to write down. This is the main point of today, okay? If you got your pencil, if you got your pen, if you got your notes, you got your pages, whatever it is, write this down. Number one, this is it, number one. The true God is a God of the outsider the true God is a God of the outsider so when we talk about worldviews, when we talk about God then I would say you can't truly talk about a worldview unless you first start with God one of the first things we have to understand is that the true God is a God of the outsider now this is unique this is interesting because most every other religion almost every other single religion focuses on their God rewarding who? The outsider? No, the insider. People inside the fence. People inside the religion, the religious boundaries. God blesses you and rewards you if you keep the rules. And and so get this. This is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus after he talked about Elijah and this widow. Look, I I don't get it. I'm not following. This woman was as much of an outsider as you could be. And yet God saves her. God is good to her. God rewards her, in a sense, by bringing her son back to life. Understand that this woman literally did not keep any rules. She was a, quote, sinner. She was an outsider. There was nothing insider uh, about her at all. Understand this. Number one, she was a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Jews were God's chosen people. So racially, she was an outsider. Number one, racially, an outsider. Number two, she was a pagan. In every sense of the word, she worshipped the Baal. She sacrificed to to false gods. She's an outsider. Number three, she was a woman. At this point in time in this day, she was a gender outsider. This is a big deal. This is why Elijah could roll up into town and say, like, excuse me, woman, can you get me some water and make me a cake? And she responds and does it because at that point in time, she was outside because of her gender. And number four, she was also, as we notice, a widow. And so economically, she was an outsider. This woman was as much of an outsider as you could be. Uh, Gentile, pagan, woman, and widow. And yet this is the one person that God sent Elijah to. This is no accident. This is no mistake. God did this specifically. And it is significant enough for Jesus to make it his first recorded sermon in scripture. And people wanted to kill him for it. Understand that God was, Jesus wasn't even calling himself God and people wanted to kill him. Jesus was just implying that God, the true God, is a God of the outsider. And people got that upset. Now, if you remember back in our uh, Christmas series, we had a covenant Christmas. I talked about the genealogy of Jesus. Remember that? Yeah. Um, We talked about the genealogy of Jesus. And if you were a person of authority or or a person um, who wanted to be an authority, your genealogy was very significant, right? If you were a ruler in Jesus's day, you would publish your genealogy. Basically you would publish it in, a, in an attempt to show the awesomeness of your bloodline. Look at my father and look at my father's father and look at the stock that I've come from. And, and, and we know historically that, that kings would actually uh, blot out, ink out certain people that they didn't want in their genealogy. Herod did this. Herod inked out people that were failures. And, and no, uh, you know, not to step on anybody's feelings, but at this point in time, they wouldn't write down women either in their genealogy because it wouldn't add anything to their genealogy. And yet when we get to Matthew chapter one and we read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what do we see? We see a significant amount of outsiders. Significant, whether it's Rahab, the prostitute, included right in Jesus's lineage. Right right, included in his genealogy, rather. Or whether it's Ruth, the Moabite, not even a Jew. Or, or maybe it's Bathsheba, the, the woman who who uh, had an affair with, with King David. All these people are mentioned. These are not good, faithful women. Some of them are pretty shady. And yet we see them not inked out, not blotted out, but rather almost celebrated. In fact, when we think about the father of, of uh of Israel, Abraham, that's what they call, it, right? Father Abraham. This this man's name, this very prestigious man's name, is right sandwiched in between prostitutes' names. Why? What is it about Jesus' genealogy that speaks to us today? I'm telling you why. Because to God they are equal. Outsider, insider, equal. God loves Them both. These names are also included in the line that leads to Christ, and this is the applicable part for us. Listen now. These names are also included in the line that leads to Christ so that we can be sure that our names can be in the line that leads from Christ. You ever feel like an outsider? You ever look at your life and you think maybe you're here today, And you look and you're like, yeah, I hear you. But God couldn't love me. Travis, if you knew what was going on in my life, you you wouldn't want me here. I wouldn't be welcome here. If God truly knew, he wouldn't. Love me, I am, I'm an outsider in every sense of the word. I've got secret sin, I've got stuff going on that nobody knows about, it's embarrassing, it's dark, I've got stuff in my past that I don't bring up. Even my wife doesn't know about the stuff in my past. Even my husband, if they knew, they probably wouldn't even wanna be, be with me. I don't tell my kids, I don't tell my friends, I keep it down, I lock it back. I'm an outsider. I put on a front, but I'm an outsider. The true fact of the matter is that if you're an outsider, you're at an advantage because the true God is the God of the outsider. You have to understand that there is room in the family for you. It's an advantage to be an outsider. Think about this. God sent Jesus into this world to save outsiders. Jesus walked among people who were outsiders, outside this realm of of religion and relationship. Jesus died for a bunch of outsiders. Jesus rose again for a bunch of outsiders. He leaves his word for a bunch of outsiders. You say, well, how are you like differentiating between outsiders and insiders? Because none of us are insiders, truly. We're all outsiders. Each and every one of us were born sinners. Now this may come as a shock because maybe you've just had a, a baby. You're like, no way, they're not a sinner. Look at how cute, they couldn't even, just wait like two weeks you'll see just how sinful and depraved that little ball of flesh is. And then they get older and you really realize, right? We're all born depraved. We're all born sinful. We're all born sinners. There is truly nothing good inside of us. And so sometimes we look at ourselves, and you say there's nothing about me that would make God want me. Guess what? You're the exact person that Jesus Christ came to save exactly. And so sometimes we we do this thing where we begin to think about people that Jesus came to save and the people that Jesus didn't come to save. You ever notice that? Of course, we're on the inside. We've got the fence built up around us. And we begin to look outside. Sometimes we peer outside the fence and we say, look at all those people. Look at all those people. Look at all those people. Look at, look at how they sin. I can't believe this world. I can't believe the state of this world. I, I can't believe how this world is going to, to hell in a handbasket. Look at those people of those other religions. They don't know what they're doing. Look how, look how evil they are. Look at, look at how, and when Jesus looks down, he doesn't necessarily see this insider outsider. And this is why the Jews hated him. Because Jesus split that wide open. You understand that? Jesus broke that wide open. Open. Jesus came to this earth for the outsiders. He lived his life on mission for the outsiders. He died again for the rose again for the outsiders. Because, truth be told, none of us are on the inside. Now, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 5 that he didn't come for the spiritually healthy. Do you ever notice that? Jesus is hanging around sinners so much, people accuse him of being a drunk. Right? Jesus, oh, you know he's a drunk. Well, how do you know that? He hangs around drunks. And he hangs around hookers, hangs around prostitutes. He's not a good guy. Why was Jesus spending his time with that demographic of people? Because Jesus says, I didn't come to heal the healthy. I came to bring healing to the sick. I came to seek and save who? The lost. Jesus truly came to seek out and to save the lost, because the true God is the God of the outsider. Now, I usually write some sermons, my sermons in advance, and take time to pray over them, and we write sea life over them. And as I was studying for this sermon and, and this life of Elijah, I was incredibly convicted. I remember sitting down on the couch with my wife, and we were having this conversation, and and I told her, like, the more I learn about Jesus the more I realize that I am just nothing like him. That's like a very tough place to be. You know, because we're raised, kind of like getting gold stars in church and telling you're special and you're awesome and go the distance, you know what I mean? And all that stuff, blue ribbons and they've got crosses on them that makes them Christian and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, and then you come to this point in your life where you realize like, I'm nothing like Jesus. And it brings, hopefully, conviction. And, and I'm reading through this and I'm saying, I'm seeing like Jesus is spending all this time, like he's spending a majority of his time with outsiders. And then I look at my life and I, I sat there talking to my wife and, and this realization happens where it was like, I, I don't spend a lot of time with outsiders. I told my wife, I was like, I don't, I don't even know if I interact on a regular basis with people that are far from Christ. I spend a lot of time with insiders. I spent a lot of time with people who are Christians. I spent a lot of time walking through life and doing discipleship and, and, and talking and whatnot. But this conversation with my wife went from a thought to a conviction to like a full dull ache in about three minutes. You ever have one of those? That's where it was for me. And it broke me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not gonna lie. It, it like broke me. How can I stand on a Sunday morning and preach about a God who loves the outsider, who came to save the outsider, who died for the outsider, and yet the majority of what I do is spend time with insiders and learn insider language and talk about insider strategy. So quite honestly, over the past three months, myself and my wife and my family, we have tried to restructure, reprioritize, if you will, the time that we spend and who we spend that with and where we spend that time and how we interact with people. I'm not perfect at it, but I can say we're seeing fruit from these relationships with, quote, outsiders, fruit with these relationships of people that don't know Jesus and we're trying to do life with them. We're trying to walk alongside them and not just build up these fences. And the linchpin of the whole thing came when I had this thought, and maybe this is a thought you could ask yourself. If God were to answer every single one of my prayers right now in one fail swoop, every single one since last Sunday, how many new people would be in the kingdom of God this week? Do you get know what I'm saying? If God were to answer every single one of my prayers, it just... Okay, everything you prayed. Since last Sunday, I will answer yes to everything you prayed. How many new people would know Jesus this week? That convicted me on a whole nother level. We have this thing that we do where, just like me this morning, running out, lifting my hands in victory, celebrating the rabbits that didn't get into my garden because of the fence that I put up, we have this thing that we do and we are famous for it as Christians for building walls, for building fences, for people that aren't like us, for people that don't believe like us. And and so because they don't believe like us, because they don't follow Jesus, we want nothing to do with them. But yet Jesus jumps into the midst of people that don't know him, don't want to know him, don't care about his belief structure, and he loves them. We have to learn how to be like Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. What was Jesus's agenda to befriend people who the religious structure had deemed outsiders? Let me ask you, how are we doing with that? How are you doing with that? (laughs) In all your busyness and your running around and your study and your growth and your personal development and your business strategies and blah, 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 how are you doing befriending people far from Jesus. If we are not befriending people far from Jesus, what are we spending our lives doing? If the Son of God came to seek and save the lost, if the Son of God was a friend to sinners, shouldn't we follow suit? How many of us interact with people that don't know Jesus on a day-to-day basis and yet we never give one thought to talking about Jesus to them? We never give one thought to just loving them where they are. Sometimes the greatest thing that you can do to reach somebody for Jesus is not invite them to church, but actually just listen to them. You're like, wait, hold on. I thought we're bringers. I thought we bring people to church. We do. But we're supposed to befriend people far from Christ. And you build that relationship with them and you show them that you care about them, that they're not unnumbered. This is what Jesus did he befriended sinners, befriended people. Now, if the one true God, the God of Elijah, is the God of the outsider, like I said, we must be a people who follow suit. We must be a people who, who learn to love the outsider. Now, we're gonna spend some time next week talking about this whole thing kind of coming together because it's all about worldview. It's all about worldview. And this should hopefully start to pull back some of the, um, cultural, uh, worldview, Christian worldview that you've had and kind of strip it down. Um, because this is what's important. This is, this is what's important. It's like, we've been taught a certain way to be Christians through the years. And, and sometimes I think it's missing these very vital pieces like that. We we're needing to be dependent on God. God's not going to just give us everything we want because we ask him that, that God is a God of the outsider, that, that he loves other people equally. Right. I want you just to bow your heads, close your eyes. And this morning, just a simple invitation, just simple. How are you doing reaching people who aren't like you? How are you doing just listening to people who aren't like you? Now, just to get personal with you for a moment, this is an example, this is a cultural example. Eyes closed, heads bowed, just listen to me. Listen, this is where it hits home. This is a society in that we live. The other night I was watching an interview with a a famous person that you would know if I mentioned, who has decided um, to come forward as, as as a transgendered individual. And this person is being interviewed on national TV, famous, very popular and he begins to talk about his father and his family and he's breaking down and he's crying and my heart just like goes out and it's like who from our Christian world is loving him? Who is walking with him? How many of us would just be turning our backs, right? We live in a day and time when befriending people who are considered the outsiders has never been more important. Never been more important.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from part two of our series, The Wild, at Covenant Church. We hope you've been impacted by what you've heard today. Visit us online at covenantchurch.us where you can invest in life change through giving or find more impactful sermon audio just like this.